Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 98 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is Johnny Hickman, lead guitarist and a singer-songwriter in the band Cracker. Hickman provides what he and band leader David Lowry happily call bonehead guitar riffs to such indelible Cracker songs as Teen Angst, What the World Needs Now, This is Cracker Soul, and the band's biggest hit, Low. Cracker was formed after Lowry's previous band, Camper Van Beethoven, imploded while touring Europe in 1990. Lowry and Hickman knew each other already from growing up and playing music in Redlands, California. Hickman went on to play in a variety of punk and poppy bands and was performing country music when Lowry called him after Camper's demise to suggest forming a new band. The two of them moved to Richmond, Virginia, and Cracker was born. Fellow Redlands native Davey Farragher, whom Hickman describes as a mythical character, joined them on bass. I was heartbroken when Camper Van Beethoven broke up, but I loved that first self-titled Cracker album from 1992, and I gave it four stars in the Chicago Tribune. It covers a ton of stylistic ground, pounds home big choruses, and pairs Lowry's sharp wit with Hickman's muscular playing. Hickman also wrote the self-owning Mr. Wrong and co-wrote and sings another song about the rain. Another song about the rain 1993's Kerosene Hat which features Hickman's Lonesome Johnny Blues, lifted the band higher. How did Hickman's riffs on Low get smashed together? How did Sandra Bernhardt wind up boxing with Lowry in the video? Why did Hickman use a talk box a la Peter Frampton on Get Off This? What's the story behind the hidden track turned fan favorite Euro Trash Girl? Also, Hickman decides enough time has passed that he can tell what prompted his onstage altercation at the Chicago Club Metro, in which his 1977 Les Paul became a weapon. He wound up spending the night in Cook County Jail and going to trial. He also reveals the reason Davey Farragher and drummer Michael Urbano, the rhythm section of the killer Kerosene Hat lineup, left before the band recorded its third album. That's when Cracker shifted to what Hickman calls the Steely Dan model, with him and Lowry the only constants among many moving parts since then. The Golden Age, that third album, has some great material, including the title track, but the album didn't build on Kerosene Hat's success, and Hickman offers a theory for why the lead single, I Hate My Generation, wasn't embraced by mainstream radio. As Cracker continued making albums, Lowry also resumed writing, recording, and playing with a reunited camper van Beethoven. The two bands even toured together often. How did Johnny feel about that? Cracker's excellent 2014 double album, Berkeley to Bakersfield, reunited the kerosene hat lineup on the hard-hitting Berkeley disc while taking a more varied approach on the Bakersfield disc. In his underwear, playing in that dirty air, and his dad is in the Chino jail. Cracker hasn't recorded an album since then. Lowry has been releasing a series of autobiographical CDs, Hickman also has released two solo albums, Palmhenge and Tilting, while taking on production work. Last year, in what Hickman refers to as the Great Retirement Scare, he considered quitting the road for good. But this summer, Cracker, with an energized Hickman back in tow, has been touring again, with two nights of birthday shows coming to Knuckleheads in Kansas City on September 8th and 9th. Will Cracker ever record new music again? Does Hickman still love playing low and teen angst? 
Johnny Hickman has an infectious energy that he brings to the stage as well as this Carol Pop conversation. There's no way you'll come out of it feeling low. Enjoy. Another road when maybe I can see a better way to go. David Lowry had posted something, I don't know, sometime last year, which gave me the impression that you were cutting back on touring. Yeah, uh, the great retirement scare of last year. (laughs) And it was coming from both of us. I mean, at one point uh, last fall, we had a discussion in the nature of, wow, you know, uh, we'd read somewhere that the average lifespan of a rock band recording, touring, everything is about six to eight years. And uh, we've gone 34 and Larry said, boy, that's a pretty good run. Yeah, it is. And he's teaching at the University of Georgia now in Athens. And I'm producing up and coming young bands and doing a lot of solo work. So we thought it might be a good time to just sort of bow out, uh, just hang it up, uh, leave on a high note. You know, Berkeley to Bakersfield, our last official album received glowing reviews and the fans embraced it. And uh, yeah, we sort of thought, well, let's let's leave on a high note. But we didn't. <laughs> well, it's not like you haven't released another album since then. You've just, you've just, and you've been playing shows since then too. So, yeah, we have. We still are. We have, you know, I said yes in January. I'll get back in the game. It's like The Godfather. They pull me back in. <laughs> that's one of his song titles on his like latest record. It's like, uh, just when you think you're out, they pull me back in. I think yeah. Funny. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, it's funny. Back in the early days, uh, Lowry used to talk to me about, you know, he said, Johnny, you write more in, uh, in an autobiographical sort of folk way. And I don't do that. And he, at the time, he really, he sort of didn't. I mean, you could find bits and pieces of the real David and his songs, just like you could mine. Mine were just a little more Lonesome Johnny Blues or, you know, Papa Johnny's Arms. I, I love these old blues players that just sing about themselves. And, you know, it's just kind of hilarious. So you, so you really are Mr. Wrong, huh? Ah. <laughs> uh, I refuse to answer that question. On the- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, that, I, I'm sure there's a little bit of me in there. That song was initially inspired by uh, one of my brothers. Um, and I was hanging out in Bakersfield and just around all these characters that were in Merle Haggard's band and uh, Buck Owens' band at the time. And uh, they were just funny characters. And, uh, you know, maybe if you'd like to read, I got some great pornography and a 10 pound flashlight rolling in the trunk. I knew a guy in Bakersfield when I wrote that song and they called him the porno man. He had a trunk. This was a guy that worked in some of the top bands in Bakersfield, you know, kind of a country heavy hitter guy. I'm not going to name names, but he had a trunk full of porn. This was pre-internet. Right. And we just thought, what the hell is he? Why has he got this trunk? full?" (laughs) And we just thought it was funny. So we called him porno man. And he, he ended up in the song. I knew another guy up there who has passed away named Mark Clark. Mark Clark was a one-armed bass player, and he played in a lot of really great bands just by fingering his left hand because he'd had a stroke on his right arm, was paralyzed. Hmm. This was sort of my life at the time in Oildale and Bakersfield when Lowry tracked me down pre-internet and uh, found me playing drums in one band, mando in another, guitar in another, and writing songs like Lonesome Johnny Blues and Mr. Wrong I had the music to what became I See the Light, the song we wrote together instantly. I had the music. I said, here, David, which is often the way we worked in those days. 
and have always worked, I'll have a riff. And if I don't have a bunch of riffs for him to go through, he'll say, Johnny, this needs one of your big bonehead guitar riffs. And so I'll try to come up with one on the spot. And I have, we have worked that way before, you know, I have a riff. I hand it to Lowry and uh, one big riff I handed to him, uh, he tacked onto a song he'd already mostly written, Teen Angst, What the World Needs Doubt. Now our first big single. Right. And uh, it went into the top 10. (laughs) It was just amazing. He said, I think it needs one of your riffs. And I originally wrote that big guitar riff on uh, Bottleneck Slide. And then we decided it would be more just sort of visceral and bonehead, which is a good term where where we come from. Where we, so, where so, we, that, so the big now, 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 I have no shame in singing. So that's what we're talking about, right? Yes, the riff to, to Teenix, yeah. which we later realized, wow, Johnny's playing a minor key riff over a major D chord, but it somehow works. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a video which... Uh, we filmed on Mark, the late Mark Linkus's ranch with us and a bunch of dogs and motorcycles and just absolute crazy, you know, than me standing on a train track waiting for the train, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I told David the story, but I was uh, I was working the Chicago Tribune at that time, but also doing a bunch of stuff at XRT. Um, I had like a, I was uh, guesting on a local music show by the great Richard Milne, who might be listening. Hey, Richard, and. Uh, but I remember getting the, I got the advanced cassette of the Cracker record and I was psyched to get it because I was a big camper fan. And I put it on and that first song, Teen Angst, just jumped out of this. And I was like, holy <laughs> crap, this is like their big hit single. And I remember pestering the people at XRT going, you got to be playing this. This is like a hit. This is a hit. You know, like I know, I know it's a hit. And it was, it was a long time because A, I had it in advance and B, it just took a while. And then eventually it became a staple but that was one where the first time i heard it i was like damn you know i gave that album it's funny actually i looked not to pat myself on the back but i will um if you go on the wikipedia page for that album it, it references my four-star chicago tribune review just so you know just to make Thank us, you, Mark. <laughs> just make us both feel older but i thought that album was so awesome at the time i see the light another great song so yeah i see the light i mean i had that riff uh, and i had the chord structure and it's one of the ones that I brought to the table with David. I said, I, I don't know. He said, what's it about? I said, I don't know. And he wrote, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. He had just broken up with Camper, uh, which I was pretty sad about. I was a huge Camper Van Beethoven fan. And David and I knew each other before Camper ever even formed. We were musical punk rock buddies in Redlands where we grew up. But, uh, you know, and he tracked me down. And, uh, and once again, pre-internet to date ourselves. Um, I said, is, did Camper really break up? And he goes, yeah, right in the middle of a tour of Europe. I said, ah, man. And I was sad about that because they just released these two incredible records on Virgin, finally on a big label. It's starting to cook. Our right. beloved revolutionary sweethearts and Key Lime Pie, both phenomenal records. And Mark, these were both records that David was coming back to Redlands with cassettes, demo cassettes of the roughs of these songs that he was writing and writing with the guys. And I just said, this is, your, this is some of your best work. This is so good, you know, really encouraging. And then for them to break up right as they're getting that momentum uh, was, was sad. And then, I, you know, given a beat, I thought, well, it means that Lowry and I are finally going to get to work together. We've been, there's always been David's bands and Johnny's bands uh, back in the day. I had a band called The Dangers. I had another one called Tense Society, which was kind of was very hardcore punk rock in its day 
And I had the dangers with my friend Chris Leroy, and we were a pop band uh, somewhere between Costello and Nick Lowe and uh, David later compared us to Guided by Voices. It was a pop band, and David was a fan. David you, David, and Victor Kruminak used to come see The Dangers all the time, and we would swap songs. And it was I think it was meant to be, but it certainly wasn't meant to be then, right. uh, the camper van Beethoven, even though I'm very proud to say that I was invited to join, to move up to Santa Cruz and join Camper uh, at one point. But I, my then wife and I had just had a baby who's now a, a, an amazing uh, hip-hop electronica producer. <laughs> wow. But at that time, he was just a wee, a wee baby. So, And I had just started a house painting company. And uh, so I was not really ready to move to Santa Cruz, but I appreciated the, uh, the invitation, of course. Uh, just for a little extra piece of history, uh, Camper Van Beethoven grew out of a band, a side band. It's always the side bands that end up getting traction. It's, it's, it's funny that way. Because you just don't overthink them and you don't over, you know, process them. But David and I had a fun little side band that, you know, played parties and things called, we called it the Estonian Gauchos. <laughs> and it, in the in the Gauchos, everybody was kind of swapping to another instrument just in the learning process of doing what we do. And so I was mostly the drummer in the Gauchos. And David, for the first time, uh, switched from bass to guitar and really was taking that seriously, writing on guitar. He's a phenomenal bass player. He used to play a uh, a fretless bass in punk bands, which was <laughs> pretty out there. Huh. But, How did you guys uh, know each other originally? Um, just from our little scrappy bands around Riverside and Redlands and Southern Cal and the Inland Empire, as they call it, which is anything but an empire. But, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, pretty famous people have come from there. And uh, we played in bands. We played like at the UC Riverside Barn. There was an on-campus on nightclub. And, uh, you know, was, David had a band called Sitting Duck at the time. Um, and Sitting Duck would open for the dangers or vice versa. We played parties around town and so forth. And uh, we, we met each other. We actually, the first time that we met, we were both trying out for uh, what our friend was calling a new wave cover band. And this is late 70s, and new wave and punk rock were pretty new to Southern California. And so uh, we were kind of the weirdos playing this music. We were the oddballs. And, uh, but we, we continued with it because we, we loved that music. We were, you know, we, when we first started hanging out, we both, uh, you know, record swapping and sharing what we were listening to. I mean, we were listening to the first Clash album. We were listening to uh, X. We were listening to, uh, you know, a lot of what was coming from England. Um, in addition to like Para Ubu and just sort of outside bands that uh, our hard rocking friends, you know, had no idea that this groundswell was beginning. And uh, Lowry and I just kind of ran with it in our separate bands and so forth. And so, us finally getting together uh, in 1991 and moving to Richmond, Virginia together and writing songs the whole time during the move. And once we got there, it felt like, uh, you know, some sort of manifest destiny of wonderfulness. In those old bands you had when you were in Redlands, were you usually the lead guitarist? Were you also singing? Were you main songwriter? Little, little of both. Uh, I was I was writing songs, co-writing uh, with my friend Chris Leroy and The Dangers. Who are still going uh, at this point in another iteration of that band. 
You guys yeah, co-wrote I, another song about the rain, right? A song about the rain and a whole lot of trouble. Uh, there are several that have found their way onto Cracker Records. Yeah, because David David was a big fan of uh, Hickman Leroy uh, songwriting. But yeah, there was a, sort of a connection between a lot of bands back then and people that would eventually have careers in music in our infancy. And when Camper broke up, like where were you musically at that point? What were you up to? When Camper broke up, I was in Bakersfield and in Oildale and up near Lake Isabella playing with my older sister who just passed away. And she was a keyboard player and a singer. And I was playing in country bands and just sort of soaking that up. And when David tracked me down, you know, and he'd heard that I was playing in these country bands and he asked me, is it serious? I said, well, no, I'm just soaking it up. I'm soaking up, uh, you know, what we, I know that you and I love. He and I would sneak off on the punk rock scene to go listen to Cash or Merle Haggard, you know, or Willie, you know, or Patsy Cline. Um, and that was just sort of verboten in the punk rock scene that we were a part of at the time. <laughs> right. Now you're, you're two Southern, Southern California kids who end up in, you know, Richmond, Virginia, writing these kind of country-esque songs all of a sudden. Like, it sounds like you're this sort of like, you know, genuine American rootsy outfit, but, you know. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed, Dave and I have both enjoyed, and we sort of sort of pre-planned this from the get-go when we started making songs together, was that uh, as much as we love a band like the Ramones or, you know, uh, we, I don't think we could survive as a sub-genre sort of collaboration or a band, uh, you know, because we love the Sex Pistols and we love the Kinks and we love the, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and just prog rock. I mean, we were all over the map as far as the music we loved. Uh, and that's why the cracker sounds the way it does is because we're pulling in a lot of styles and just throwing it all into the pot. And we knew we were going to do that and we went ahead and did it. And subsequently the record label, you know, we were signed to Virgin. I kind of got grandfathered in once they realized that I was co-writing a lot of this song, these songs. They, uh, I remember the English, uh, branch, the original branch of Virgin Records, um, sort of asking David, well, how do we market you? Are you country? Are you punk? And sometimes you sound like Zeppelin. What, how, what do we call you? How do we market you? And David and I were sort of big discussing, like, well, it's very English of you to look at it that way. Uh, we're all of the above. And uh, yeah, I mean, our punk rock roots as musicians and friends is there i mean from the first album don't fuck me up peace and love all the way through sunrise and land of milk and honey i wrote a song called uh, you know time machine which is about you know going back to the day days when larry and i were were you know in, in a buick full of bloody rags black flag cassettes after the the dead kennedys riot in uh, in wilmington that year you know um and we just sort of pulled all that in mark you know just we didn't want to edit any of our the, the music that we love out of what we were doing. So did he call you up and say, Hey, you know, camper broke up, let's form a band. And this is what the band is going to be. Or was it just like, let's get together and see what happens or what? That, it was more that. Yeah. Um, the latter, he tracked me down, as I said, sort of playing in country. And, uh, but I was also really starting to write a lot. And so was he, and he showed me one after another, either sketches or fully formed songs that I just immediately, fell in love with. I mean, he's always had that 
attitude and that uh, <laughs> that tongue-in-cheek humor and uh, just his way of writing is very, very unique. And uh, I was always drawn to that. So, um, you know, we, we both, you know, it's funny. Uh, there was a, there was a, uh, a discussion on uh, the Crumbs page. They pr- proudly call themselves the Crumbs, uh, our fan base. And uh, so I refer to them as the Crumbs, and I always capitalize it because I love these people. The Cracker but, Crumbs. Yeah, the, and there, there's Crumbs UK, there's Crumbs Espana, Crumbs Southern Contingent, Crumbs San Francisco, Crumbs Canada, and they all find each other. And they used to come to the campouts, now they come to the camp-ins. And this year, uh, on our birthday, we're going to start a new tradition at uh, Knuckleheads in Kansas City, uh, which we're going to we're approaching it as yet another one of our birthday shows. And because one of the things about the camp out and the camp in camp in is in Athens, Georgia and camp out was um, in pioneer town out in the Mojave. So it's a little bit of a, of a bit of travel for crumbs on either coast to, to attend. So we thought, well, this time we'll, we'll you know, David had the, the very good idea. Let's put it somewhere a little more central. So there we go. We'll see how, uh, We'll see how this got the, the cracker, the takeover. We're calling it the takeover. <laughs> when, when you guys formed uh, Cracker, was was Davy Farragher someone who you also grew up with, or did you know him from later? We knew Davy um, in Redlands. He's from Redlands, like the, like the two of us. But Davy was sort of this mythical character. Davy, by the time he was sixteen or seventeen, had gold records from playing with the Pointer Sisters and playing with these other big soul bands. He was a soul guy. And uh, when we tracked him down, I mean, he'd, he'd gotten, he'd been playing with David Crosby and David Barrowall and just, uh, he said, I only play with David's. And then he got with us, you know, <laughs> but it was, but he was, he was sort of legendary. There was a band called the Farragher brothers that he had with right. all his siblings. And uh, I think both of the parents were either music teachers or working musicians and there's like like 25 kids in the family, and they all play and sing and write, and uh, they're all in the arts, and they're just an amazing family. So we felt really fortunate once we kind of tracked Davey down that he was at a point where he was getting a little burned out on the studio musician gig, and uh, he was wanting to cut loose and have fun and go be in a band. So we said, well, just so happens, Davey, that, uh, you know, Annie's a fantastic singer, a fantastic arranger. So we started co-writing with Davey and uh, gave him a lot of uh, free reign to arrange uh, the songs that we were writing. And he did an incredible job. And being as well connected as he was, he was pulling in amazing people to come join us, uh, you know. And uh, between Davey and Don Smith, I mean, Lowry and I were like kids in a candy store making our first record together. And here's Ben Montench, who uh, Don Smith was very well connected to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Right. So they're behind us. Uh, you know, we had these incredible people coming in to sing and play on our on our first record. Jim, Jim Keltner. I was going to say, you had Jim Keltner drumming on there. <laughs> the greatest drummer in rock history uh, was up the street working on Little Village. And uh, Don Smith, being very bold, late great Don Smith, uh, asked him, he said, hey, you, we're, we're up the street making a, making a record. And he said, yeah, I think you'd really like it. And... Uh, Jim Keltner said, well, let me hear some of the songs. And we and Don gave him a cassette of, I think it had Mr. Wrong and uh, probably Teen Angst and I See the Light, just Cracker Soul, which is a song Dave and I wrote together. 
This is Gragersol. And Keltner liked it. He really liked it. And he said, well, if I come in, I get to pick which songs I play on. And we said, of course, you're Jim Keltner. <laughs> and he picked a song that I'd written on my own, one that David had written on, on his own, and a couple of songs that we'd co-written. So it was just perfect. Yeah. You know? And he came in and basically, uh, to some degree, he sort of showed us how our songs should go. <laughs> and what what a what a, an incredible situation to find ourselves in, you know. How many different drummers are on that record? I think three, maybe four. That was another thing that Virgin Records said. Well, first off, what are you going to call yourselves? We didn't even have a name yet when we started doing demos and things. Uh, and then we ended up, and that that the, the name sort of came out of. Um, well, the camper guys always referred to David as the cracker of the band because he was, you know, he'd spent a lot of time growing up in the South and he liked his chicken fried steak, and, you know. But uh, really, it came down to when we first moved to Richmond, um, David one day asked me, Johnny, what kind of music is this that we're making? I said, I, it's Southern white boy with friends of every color in the band. Kinda, I don't know. What do you call that? He said, I, it's kind of cracker soul music, sort of like Little Feet and we were thinking of other bands that, that are Skinnered and some of these bands that were of that. They were very soulful and their bands were, were multiracial and uh, drew from soul and from rock and from everywhere. And we said, yeah, I think uh, I think we've got one of those kinds of bands here. You know, uh, we love Lowell George as much as we love the Sex Pistols. So. so the band name came before the song title, This is Cracker Soul? Uh, they kind of came up at the same time, I think. Yeah, This is Cracker Soul. Um, we were just sort of finding our way. We just both moved to Richmond. Uh, in the first uh, summer, there was incredibly hot and humid, and uh, we weren't used to that being desert billies. And then that winter, it was, you know, there were blizzards. So we're walking down to uh, the hardware store to get kerosene heaters, which we had no idea. Wait, we got to get what? There was no heat or air conditioning in the house that we rented, which is a, like a, a pre Civil War row house. And uh, we just, you know, boarded ourselves up in there and made made music. You know? So is it just the two of you who moved down to Richmond? Not really yeah, down, but across yeah. to Richmond, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then David, you came back to L.A. to record. Yeah, we did. Um, David moved, wanted to move to Richmond. And at the time, I was, you know, single and, you know, between bands and just sort of in, a, in an experimental time. And I told David, yeah, as long as uh, I can get home to see my, my son who was about two or younger then, um, you know, at least once a month and have him come out for little visits, then I'm in. So that's the way we set it up. Inversion gave us a little, just a little startup, but I think they gave us like 8,000 bucks, which which we lived off of for months <laughs> in those days, which you could do in 1990, 91. And we also bought an eight-track uh, cassette recorder, like a really nice one. So we were making pretty decent demos. So Key Lime Pie, the last Camper Van Beethoven album, is is a really great record. And one of the things I noticed at some point later was the Key Lime Pie has almost no choruses in the songs. And Cracker, the first self-titled album, has these big choruses in the songs. Yeah. And there's this shift <laughs> in the song where, where, where David, and obviously he's writing with you this time, but you know he, he always had this sort of tuneful thing but he's they're really you guys are pounding home those choruses on this yeah. record and i'm wondering if there was sort of a discussion of like you know these songs need to have some choruses you could sing along with 
I think it just sort of happened naturally. Yeah, I mean, David was certainly kind of a strong pop uh, presence in Camper, looking back on it all, writing songs like Take the Skin Hits Bowling, which does have a big rousing chorus. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, we've been doing some of those songs uh, with Cracker Live, and it's really been fun. Um, yeah, I heard you guys do that one at Space here. We might have done Ambiguity Song. We did Ambiguity Song, song. yes. It's one of David's favorites from, from Camper 2. And uh, and those songs do have the, the pop uh, verse, chorus, verse, first chorus sort of structures. And a lot of that, um, I wasn't really thinking about it consciously at the time, but that's just the way I write. You know, I write a big melodic riff. And a lot of my big melodic guitar riffs, David ends up taking that melody and singing it. Uh, I see the light is a good example. A lot of the songs where he's singing some bonehead melody, I came up with on the guitar. So it kind of naturally morphs into uh, a chorus. Uh, a lot of times when, when you do that and it worked that way for us. So it wasn't, it wasn't really much that much of a conscious way to write songs. It just, uh, it just felt right. And uh, from, you know, the, the early punk rock days of bands like the Ramones or Sex Pistols, there's usually a big rousing chorus you know, and uh, it just goes with that sort of three minute, you know, you know, two minute, 58, <laughs> three minute song uh, way, way to create. So you made this album and, you know, it was you and uh, David and then also DV, Farragher, and then a bunch of drummers. And then you and then you started touring behind it and playing the stuff live. I saw you at South by Southwest. So I think it was still before that album was out. In fact, I interviewed David down there at the time and talked about <laughs> The beginning of this band and the end of the previous band and stuff and then i i you know i think you played metro after that in chicago because i was living in chicago already um and like what did it feel like to sort of be out functioning as a band as opposed to having you know done the studio work where you sort of had this you know a bunch of really great guests but it wasn't like just this core playing all the songs you know camper had broken up and version at the time were kind of pressuring us to call it camper van beethoven and of course, David, really? was, David was sort of, you know, going back and forth about it. We understood as businessmen, which you've got to be, you're not going to survive in this business uh, to some degree, uh, because they'd already put a lot of uh, time, effort and funding into the name Camper Van Beethoven. And I was a huge fan and I thought about it for a minute. And, I, and then, you know, sitting down at the meetings with the Virgin people, and I said, well, number one, Camper Van Beethoven is the kind of band that if we were to call ourselves Camper Van Beethoven, it's just, and David is the only member from that band. I think they would call foe. I don't think they would buy it. I think they would. Uh, it would have a, very, a negative impact. Uh, and David said, "Yeah, and you know, we're we're starting new. I mean, we're writing songs together." So, um, and I said, "Yeah, if we resemble Camper Van Beethoven musically, it's because of David's, you know, lyrical ability, which is are phenomenal, and uh, the sound of his voice." Sure. But then uh, people who hear it might think, oh, it might, is that the new Camp Van Beethoven record? No, it's the new Cracker record. So it was a little bit of dust settling kind of thing of how, how we were going to approach this. And once we had a name and had already made the first record, and uh, you know, there had been 100 people in and out of the band. Years. In the business, they sort of call this the Steely Dan model, even though we sound nothing like Steely Dan, but it's basically two principals right. uh, who are making songs and uh, playing a lot of the instruments and uh, deciding on who would be right for a certain song. With us, it went beyond uh, who would be right for the band. And I look at it from hangability and playability. You got to have both 
because you're going to live with these people in a tour bus or a van or a cheap, shitty motel with eight of you in a room or whatever you're doing. Um, so you've got to be able to get along with these people. But from the beginning, uh, you know, I, in retrospect, I salute David and I for uh, having the wherewithal, having been in a lot of bands up till then to just say, OK, let's just let's just keep it the two of us. It'll be much less com- complicated. And it leaves us open to, you know, we go beyond who's right for this band. We, we go to who's right for this song, uh, who's right for this album. Right. Uh, you know, and each album has its own character uh, because of that um, design model. I mean, well, in Berkeley to Bakersfield, you got two different bands on the two different discs, too. So. Yes, pretty much. You know, for the Berkeley disc, we reunited with our kerosene hat guys, Davey Farragher and Michael Urbano both of whom have had tremendous careers in the industry and are phenomenal players, both of them. We had a certain energy that those four guys, that's what, that's where Low came from. And, uh, you know, movie star and all these big cracker songs that have, that have stayed with us. Uh, that came from that chemistry. You know, I'd come up with, as David calls it, one of my bonehead riffs or a big melodic motif, as they call it technically. Um, and Davey, and Michael Urbano knew, just knew exactly where to take each idea, you know, or David would have a completely, a song completely fleshed out and written and would toss it to Davey and Michael and I, and bam. Um, it would have been nice if we could have kept that band together and we toured together. We had a great time. We made a phenomenally good record, I think, in that respect. But uh, uh, a lot of, you know, personal things got in the way of that. Number one was uh, the fact that both Davey Farragher and Michael Urbano were recently sober, clean and sober, and, uh, you know, card-carrying sober guys. And Lowry and I were pretty much the polar opposite of that at that time. You know, we were pretty liquid. Um, and so that created a little bit of a friction, not really friction, but it's just just lifestyle. I mean, it's hard to be in a band where, you know, two guys are swelling, you know, Maker's Mark, and the other two guys are, you know, you know, have gone through that and it, it, it left that behind them. So we understand. Right. But uh, it was a great, great lineup for that record. And uh, so we pulled it back together for the Berkeley disc of the Berkeley to Bakersfield disc. And I am so happy with those results. Uh, the Berkeley disc leans a little more uh, political um, in sort of the grand tradition of Berkeley in that part of the nation. Sure. And the other, the other disc, even though we cut it in Athens, Georgia, it is very Bakersfield. I mean, I've always had a Bakersfield sort of twang to what I do. And Dave and I were both big, big fans of, uh, of Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and uh, that whole scene. So it just, uh, yeah, we had, we pulled together. That's a good, that record's a good example. It's a double album with all kinds of people playing on it. Um, you know, fiddlers or whoever we pulled in for a, for a certain song. Um, we've always just, uh, you know, withheld the right to pull in who would be the right drummer for this song? Who do we want on keys for this song? Do we want female backing vocals? Hmm. You know, Pedal Steel would be nice on this. And that's where what making that record is where we uh, got together with Pistol for the first time, our phenomenal Pedal Steel player. And uh, he's uh, very busy with his uh, various musical outfits that he does. And once in a while, you know, the, the, the stars align, the planets align, and we've got Pistol for a handful of shows. So there we are again with pedal steel. Right. And we, we've got hundreds of songs between our solo records and all the cracker records and camper records and dangers. I know all these, we have this, these hundreds of songs that we can 
pull back in. And depending on the instrumentation we've got on a particular leg of a particular tour, we'll dive back into the catalog. And um, I think that's a lot of why Chrome Nation is just so uh, devout and so with us up through all these years, because they know if they come see three so- three shows in a row, we will vary it a little bit. And we'll pull songs out of the past that they, uh, you know, I can see them on the cell phone as soon as we kick into a song they're doing, you know, and I love that. I love that. Do you need another hero? Yes, you do. If it's a Hero IPA from Revolution Brewing, this Chicago-based superbrewer offers an array of heroes, no special effects needed. Leading the pack is Antihero IPA, the classic that built Revolution with its crisp, clean bitterness and massive floral and citrus aromas. Hazy Hero, Illinois' number one hazy IPA, boasts a smooth, velvety body and a big fruit-forward flavor. And the balanced new Infinity Hero features exciting next-generation hop varieties. It's time to choose your hero. Kerosene Hat, your second record, turns out to be this big commercial breakthrough, also, you know, an excellent album. What was the creation of that record like? Did it feel like this sort of leap or just sort of a continuation of what you were doing or a little more cohesive band thing because it was just four of you instead of, you know, all these, I mean, you know, at least with the drumming part of it? Kerosene Hat, once again, we were still at that time, occasionally, you know, rolling over to we really need just to form a solid band and keep it together forever. You know, we were still up that mindset. Well, it's the band thing, you know, which almost never happens. Usually in every band, there's either one or two uh, principles, you know, the Mick and Keith, uh, you know, Tom Petty, Mike Campbell sort of connections at the center of it. And uh, then there's a next level layer out, next level out of uh, rotating band members. So at the time of Kerosene Hat, um, the first record did respectively well, eventually went gold. At the time, we were a little weird. This is when grunge was beginning. And here we are doing Mr. Wrong. And <laughs> I see right. the light. It was like old school soul. And uh, a lot of the press just really didn't know what to make of us. Um, understandably, we took pride in that in a way, even though it would have been nice to get a big featured articles that we saw our other bands getting. But we weren't part of a trend. We were a mess. You know, we've always been somewhat of a mess, but a very uh, articulate uh, and, and thoughtful mess. <laughs> but that way, there is a method to our madness and a game plan. And from the get-go, we really, uh, we sort of knew that we were very different as individuals and as a, and as a partnership, the two of us. Uh, it's, it's funny that Lowry and I have the same birthday. September 10th, we're both very Virgo, you know, for those of you who believe in those things. So there's a side of what we do and who we are that is very uh, concise and very organized. Our intellectualism, it, you know, it lives in that realm and we apply it that way. We stay very organized in, in some ways, but we also stay, stay very open as to, huh, what are we going to do next? I don't know. You know, and people are, a lot lately have been asking me, well, are you guys going to make a record together? You know, and I never say never, but uh, I, I think Larry's right in that if we were to leave it on a high note with Berkeley to Bakersfield and just keep making our solo records with our doing just fine, by the way, we've both gotten great reviews and, you know, the fans have embraced our solo records, but I never say never, you know. <laughs> 
We'll see. Yeah. You guys had a show at Metro and I think someone jumped on the stage and got clocked on the head by you and your guitar. Do you remember that? I remember it very clearly. I was thrown into Cook County jail overnight. You don't forget that. So uh, what happened? All right. So what's the story there? <laughs> I guess enough time. Enough Statue. time has passed. Absolutely. Um, we had on our crew at the time, a good friend of ours uh, on guitar tech and a stage manager named Jay. And Jay was 19 years old at the time, but he was very street savvy. He's a pretty tough Atlanta street kid, right? Uh, big, tall, you know, healthy, very smart young man. And it, but he had, you know, very tattooed and long dreadlocks. And I think at one point, the uh, security uh, team at the Metro there, you know, kind of amped up Gold's Gym types, you know, as they often are, didn't think that Jay belonged on the stage. And Jay is screaming and telling him, no, I, I work for these guys. I belong here. And a tussle, you know, uh, broke out between the two. And this was behind the, the band. I think it might have even been a sold out show, but it was metro and it was packed and it was very uh a very rowdy crowd very rowdy chicago crowd that night a very passionate rowdy chicago crowd and so this mayhem's going on back there and i'm seeing fists flying and i'm seeing uh, a real fight going on so i had the presence of mind to go back there and say hey uh he belongs up here let go of him. the guy turned around to me and said fuck you right in my face so it, mistake <laughs> uh, and even then i didn't get physical until I, I went immediately over to another security guard a woman and said uh, could you break that up over there because if you don't i'm going to she just kind of well she kind of came to that look well uh if our one of us is going out with one of yours uh i'm taking sides or i'm just staying out of it so at this point i just thought well i'm going to get involved Jay's mom had trust, entrusted us to take him on the road. And uh, yeah, he's 19 years old. Uh, and I think he might have even been winning the fight. He certainly was at some point. But I went back there and I uh, got involved. <laughs> and I broke it up <laughs> in a physical way. This is like in the middle of your concert, right? It was in the middle of a song, yeah. Uh, and a very heavy uh, 1977 Les Paul uh, was involved. And uh, yeah. So somebody got hurt and I came off stage that night and walked down the, the long stairway there in the Metro. Right. I met with uh, the owner, our promoter, Joe Shanahan, who said, Johnny, what happened? And as he's saying, Johnny, what happened? I see behind him, not one night, two, but seven <laughs> Cook County cops coming up the stairs. Wow. Hey, hey, wait, I'm not going anywhere. Hey, no, they cuffed me and the whole thing. And uh, the guy had press charges and uh, so forth. So, um, yeah, I went to jail. I spent the night in Cook County Jail that night. <laughs> so what wound, up, what wound up happening? I mean, you didn't come back and go on trial or anything. No, we finished We finished the show. Yeah. Uh, and this all happened afterward. And, yeah, there was a trial. And um, Man, I missed that. I got off. Uh, well, you know, Cracker's a very well-connected band, both within the law and without the law. Uh, mostly within, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> beep, beep. No, I don't care now. I'm 66 years old, Mark. I don't give a damn. It was anyway, a while ago. It was a very long time ago, you know. And uh, so, you know, it, it eventually the dust settled. And I think uh, we paid for the guy's uh, time off work and uh, for like a, a medical bill and stuff. <laughs> Oops, sorry. And the 77 Les Paul remained your instrument of choice. 
Mostly, although uh, I've, I've got some spinal trouble. It's a that guitar is like a cinder block. It's a very, very heavy guitar. And uh, has a weapon that becomes very formidable. And it's a great <laughs> sounding guitar. But uh, did I say that? It's a great sounding guitar. Beautiful guitar. It's been with me forever. But uh, it's really, really heavy. And uh, there's a there's a fantastic crumb named Ben. Who's a, he's a back surgeon. And uh, at one point, I was having a lot of back pain. And my, you know, the x-rays, my back was a little curved. Yeah. And I remember him saying that, wow, you're, Wearing cowboy boots, which aren't even meant for standing in, they're meant for being in a stirrup. You're jumping up and down in these cowboy boots with a cinder block around your, <laughs> your shoulders. So that's where my back trouble started. So about the past six, seven years, I've been playing this a really nice Fender Stratocaster, which was a gift from a crump. So there you go. Oh, there you go. Did yeah. you change your footwear also? Yes, I'm wearing a little bit more. I'm wearing Nikes and things now, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not wearing the big hardy boots. So, so what did what did the success of Low and uh, you know the album Kerosene Hat do for you guys? Was that a good thing? Turn us into to instant assholes. No, <laughs> yeah, it was a very good thing. I think uh, because it was a long time in coming for Lowry and I to get our due as songwriters and as, as bandmates. That uh, as crazy as we still were in those days, we're pretty young guys, but uh, we took a deep breath and realized that wow, let's be grateful here. This is finally finally happening. We're too weird for the mainstream, but we've got our, we got in through the back door somehow. And then, you know, we're not a household word. Maybe we're, a, you know, a, down the, the hallway in the basement word. I don't know, whatever. But we, we got, we finally got some traction. And people uh, and don't really realize that both the first record and Kerosene Hat, they, they did kind of a slow grow. Um, Low was a hit pretty quickly, but it was played on, uh, the outsider radio stations and college stations for a good while before it finally, just like Teen Eggs, before it kicked in and was accepted by the mainstream. Back then, MTV was, uh, you know, the way you got your foot in the door in those days was with the video. Uh, we just happened to have a really brilliant video director, Carlos Grosso, this crazy Spaniard. You know, he and David had a discussion about, uh, you know, in the video, David should box his feminine other. And then it was it came down where I was like, well, who would that be? Oh, is that how, that's how you got Sandra Bernhardt? That's how Sandra Bernhardt ended up in the video. I didn't realize that was his feminine other. It, it looks like she could be a sister. She looks like a Lowry, man. And uh, funny. so we said, well, you know, what? let's just take a chance. So we, are, you know, as they say, our people got in touch with Sandra's people. And Sandra said, uh, well, send me the song. If I like the song, I'll think about doing it. If I don't like the song, forget it. So we sent her the, the song and her voice, uh, message back on the answering machine was i love this fucking song let's do this <laughs> so then before you know it we're in the la riverbed the set people were building an actual boxing ring in the la riverbed larry and i are getting buried in sand up to our necks with frogs jumping around us it was just a great experience it was really really fun so sandra and david uh, put on boxing gloves and really did have a boxing match if you look at that and it looks uh looks very real I was going for, hey, method actor, Sandra, you know, yeah, you might have to really, you know. She's winning. Yeah, she is. Uh, <laughs> don't hurt each other. But, you know, you know, Carlos and I are on the side. Like, wow, this is really looking good. They're really, they're really going in. They, they committed to really going for a boxing match. And the video just turned out so well. And it, uh, it got a lot of play. It started off on, uh, what was it, 120 minutes, like late Sunday night. Sort of where they put the weirdos like us and the meat puppets and you know the replacements or whoever. 
Um, but it got played, and gradually, you know, as more and more radio stations decided they liked the song, you know, months later after it came out, um, you know, we got some traction. A lot of that came from the video. A lot of that came from courageous uh, stations like XRT just saying, you know what? We love this song. We're going to play the hell out of it. And they did. Yeah. XRT put us on the map with that song. I mean, and, you know, it, it, it was just, I'm sure you recall what, what XRT had going on. The rest of the big stations of the nation kind of XRT's planet? Really? Okay. Well, let's add it. You know, that's <laughs> the way it's the way it worked back then. When you were writing and recording the album, did you did you think, oh, low, that's the hit? Ah, uh, we loved it from the get go. Uh, we love all our babies, um, and we had a, a strong feeling about that one. But um, I I was kind of leaning just as much toward the song "Movie Star" um, and some of the other ones. Um, and I loved Low. We all we we did. We we thought it was a strong one. We knew it was a strong one. It had a strong riff. It had you know David had written just an incredible song in there with the, the lyrical, uh, you know, the, the beautifully vague grunge noir as they called it at the time. Uh, content, lyrical content. Um, yeah, it was an it was interesting. And I remember at one point David uh, being you know David and being half British and. And having that cognizance and that, that 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 frame of mind, he said, "You know, Johnny, these people that do this at the labels, they know what they're doing. They have these jobs for a reason. So we should just let them pick the single." Wow, you're absolutely right. And we told him what we liked, uh, and it was pretty unanimous at Virgin that yeah, this one. It's a guy named Jeffrey Nauman. Thank you, Jeffrey. He fought for us, and he said, "Now this is the song." He knew. He said, "This is this this one." this you know and then uh, get off this became a big single not too much later right and we did an animated video which was also a carlos rosso creation uh as was euro trash girl and i this is, is a great little bit of vindication of uh, from the artist's point of view here david and i we'd written euro trash girl in a shitty little motel room in new jersey after our drummer had seen some euro dance show on television said, oh, look at these girls, pure Euro trash. When Dave and I went, huh. So the song became sort of like a diary at this guy we created and his hapless journeys around Europe. And, you know, the lyrics are mostly Dave as I threw a couple things in there on my knees for the sergeant. I said, okay, you know, uh, he loses <laughs> his passport. He's, you know, and so we, 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 get, we had fun in almost this sadistic way of what was going to happen to this guy, you know. And I said, oh, if so do we kill him at the end? And Dave said, no, we can't kill him. And so we just had fun creating Euro Trash Girl. But we had the song Euro Trash Girl, which was a pretty long song. Uh, it had even more verses that aren't didn't end up in the final cut. Um, I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan, and I love those songs where it's like a little mini novel. I'm a huge fan of that kind of work from Bob Dylan or Neil Young, and where they don't they're not thinking three minutes. They're thinking as long as it takes to tell a story. And Euro Trash Girl had those aspects. And uh, it was just so fun to write that song. But of course, the record labels say, we've got a six and a half minute song here. Are you kidding? You and I said, well, I guess we can edit it. And then I think there were a few edits where it was too short. Like, well, you can't take that much out of it. And we were sort of kind of went back and forth. And eventually we got it to something that they thought that they could work with. And then we made that video, which uh, fantastic video, Carlos Grosso once again. Um, and it really, really got us noticed because the video was just so weird and so out there, you know, 
uh, I had a dream where I was being executed by firing squad because David had just said, Johnny's guitar solos are like mini national anthems to tiny foreign countries written at gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him That's saying great. that interview that night. I remember on the tour bus, I had a, a, a nightmare of being executed by firing squad. Um, and I think I, did. I may have just read uh, about uh, Gary Gilmore and uh, become sort of friends with Michael Gilmore and his wife, Elaine Schock, who's a fantastic publicist. And so I was kind of aware of the, the Gary Gilmore story. And that might have come into play when I had the dream about being executed by firing squad. Anyway, I woke up in a panic, as you do from those sorts of dreams. And I said, and I and Carlos happened to be with us. I said, yeah, I had this dream. I, got, I was executed by firing squad. Carlos went, that goes in the video. So it did. <laughs> we set it up with our, our tour bus driver and uh, a couple of the band members uh, dressing up in suits and me blindfolded against the wall in the Eurotrash Girl video <laughs> and being executed, <laughs> which we had to edit some of that out because uh, you know, the gun thing at the time was kind of taboo. Uh, uh, you know, you couldn't put any kind of gun violence in a video or it wasn't going to get shown. So we, we show the firing squad. And then as, the, as Charlie Quintana, the late great college Charlie Quintana, who was sort of the generalissimo of the firing squad, his sword comes down when they're supposed to shoot me. Uh, and uh, suddenly I'm asleep in a park and I blink my eyes open. And oh, as I'm sleeping in the park, my guitar is stolen by the formerly mentioned Jay. Uh, he of the, the riot at the Metro, uh, he runs off my guitar, you know, and in the song, you know, like the junkies and junkies, dwarves, drag queens. It just, that, that's what we put in our songs. It just feels right. right. <laughs> so, you know, and then I wake up uh, in the park in my scraggly clothing. Uh, yeah, it was a really fun video to make and very heartfelt looking back and watching it now because I'm wearing a suit that Carlos insisted that I wear 24 hours a day and sleep in it because he wanted it to look like that. So I slept in the suit, which had been bequeathed to me by my brother who just passed away from AIDS. So it was like just all this heart pull in every direction. So I'm wearing the, the suit from my, my recently deceased brother, crumpled up. And he's a little taller than me, so it doesn't quite fit right. I'm wearing that in the video. And, uh, you know, we're shooting this video. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, had a, it, it, it got, a, got our foot even farther in the door, as weird as this band has always been, proudly. Right. Well, and there was a song that was on a four-song EP, Tucson, and then was just, like, buried track. It was back when CDs, like, there was some novelty to, like, having hidden tracks on CDs. So you'd, right. so you'd finish listening to Kerosene Hat, and then it would be, like, you know, track 15, 16, 17, and then, like, a track, like, 33 or something, you'd hit I Ride My Bike, and then a track 69, I think it was 69, boom, 69. all of a sudden Euro Trash Girl would come on. So it was, like, this hidden song and that was like turned into the single that you put all this effort into the video on sure. and getting back to that vindication thing um there were some people at the label who understandably didn't want to release a uh, number one such a strange song and such a long song and david and i just said well we've been playing it live this is before the days of everybody sharing music instantly everything you do the minute you do it um in those days it was still a lot of word of mouth going on and we'd been playing Euro Trash Girl live, and it was really getting a good reaction. 
by the second or third show, people were singing along, you're all trash. Girl. Yeah, everyone, everyone would sing the chorus. It doesn't matter if you're on key or not. You just, people just scream it. Recently, and I love this, Mark, um, it's just the, the last several months that we're touring this this year, uh, seeing an influx of, of young people at the shows. We're talking people in their 20s, early 30s, mid to late 20s, weren't even alive when those records came out. I love that. And there, there are groups of them at so many of these shows now. I'm the guy in the band that will just go out and talk to people, for better or worse, uh, courageously and lovingly. And I'll go into the midst of these groups of 22-year-olds and say, okay, now that I'm, I'm starting to understand this, which one of you uh, was raised on Cracker? And uh, invariably, there'll be one the, kind of the hippest girl or guy that may. And you turn the rest of these people onto Cracker. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, very proud of the fact that they listen to this crazy, eccentric band of old guys from the 90s. And really, we recently we did a show in Santa Fe, Mexico, and that was at the park. It was outside. And it was just people, as far as you could see, it was just a fantastic event, fantastic concert. And I noticed these adorable, like 20, 22 year old kids in there. And they, some of them knew every word. And what a joy. And so I made it a point to go and talk to them afterward. I talked to this, this beautiful young lady. I said, I'm just curious, how old are you? I, you know, you're not supposed to ask a lady. She said, I'm 20. And she said, I have a band. And you got one thing you need to understand, Johnny, is that these a lot of bands that are forming now, you know, not all of them, obviously, but some of the bands that are forming now, we're really kind of re-embracing and getting into that guitar rock 90s sort of sound. And we kind of, we're kind of building our sound and our band around that. Wow, really? So what's the nine? What is the nineties sound? I said you. <laughs> wow! I gave her a hug and she said, "Yeah, I mean, we don't sit there and try to write a cracker song, but we know our band sounds like that. Um, you could listen to our band and know that we've listened to Movie Star or Get Off This or Low. One of her bandmates came over and they were talking about um, uh, Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey. I said, wow. Well, that wasn't in the 90s. She said, no, but it's got that real big guitar riff, punk rock kind of thing that you guys are also known for as in addition to like you guys have that country trip down, but you also have that big rocking punk rock thing. It might, what we're doing kind of sounds like songs that could be on Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey. And I took that as a huge compliment that she even knew the record. Yeah. It's kind of one of those signs of the times that for some reason, that's not like a huge radio song. Cause to me, like, I mean, I, I think I reviewed that album for the Tribune too, but I remember hearing the record and, and just like that song just popping out, like, well, of course this should be on, you know, the radio all the time. Cause it's really great riff and catchy and tight and, you know, really good sound. It's got that kind of like guitar through the Leslie amplifier kind of sound going on. Yeah, right. A little Leslie on there. And uh, I think I was blasting it through, Boy, when we made that record, I just told the engineers and everybody in the studio, look, set my guitar amps up in a separate room. You're going to want that. I'll I'll be visually an earphone connected to the other band members. I mean, I've got <laughs> a Marshall stack and a Fender Deluxe Reverb in there and just cranked. Because there's a sound that guitars and amps make at that volume that you can't quite replicate with digital or other things. I mean, you just mm. really have blowing tubes up in there. So I did. And it was so loud that it, the people next door said they could feel a shaking a building. But it has that sound, Mark. It just does. Yeah, no, it's great. So when you went back to make the third crack record, The Golden Age, 
that was yeah. more like in your Steely Dan phase because it's the two of you, but with two new, you know, a new yeah. rhythm section. Did that feel different? And did you feel sort of the need to sort of reach those commercial heights that you guys had, you know, ascended from the first album to the second album? I, I look back on that record and it's a lot of the hardcore crumbs favorite record. Uh, that one and gentlemen's blues, but gold, the golden age, um, we were just coming off the, 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 the big success of kerosene hat. And we didn't want to, and this is, this is the way David and I work and think and create. We didn't want to make kerosene hat mock two. Right. We wanted to just, you know, and David had, uh, I'm a little rocket ship. Oh my God. This is so good. You know? And, uh, that's a riff song and a great, it's just a phenomenal song. And I had riffs and bits and pieces of things. Um, he had Big Dipper, and he said, I think it needs one of your riffs. And so I added the, the, the little, I wanted to match the mood of uh, his his story in Big Dipper, uh, which is very bittersweet and tender. So I gave it this tender little intro and used that again as the solo in the middle. And we were at a place where we didn't want to make Kerosene Hat Mach 2, although the album most certainly does rock. It's got Sweet Thistle Pie and some just balls out rockers on it. Yeah, you know, we cut uh, a version of When the Levee Breaks right around then because we had just such a powerful band together and we were we cut it to be used on Enconium, the led zeppelin tribute record and uh, we were informed by the page and plant people that um yeah we're in a legal dispute with the, the ownership of the title of the song levy breaks the song so we couldn't use it but we made a great great version of that song of course the the, the fans somehow found it dug it out of a two-inch tape in a studio somewhere uh, so it's out there. But I'm going to have to track that down now. Yeah, we ended up doing good times, bad times instead, which we went into the studio and did it in about an hour. And I turned on every guitar effect I owned. And I heard later that Page and Plant, when they were listening to all the songs that were going to go on Enconium, um, I think Plant said, it sounds like he put on every every guitar pedal he owns. And Page said, I think he did. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a blurry guitar mess. But uh, yeah, uh, Golden Age... Uh, has a special place in my heart. It didn't have a huge single on it. We put out uh, I Hate My Generation as a single, and I really pushed for it, and I was I might have been off the mark on that one because it was just a little too harsh for mainstream radio. But it's an incredible song that David wrote. I came up with the riff, and we kind of built the song around this big bonehead riff. I remember coming up with it. We were in Ireland rehearsing for a tour over there, and I had that... <laughs> big screamy sex pistol kind of riff. Um, and David started singing over it and coming up with the chords under it. And we, this song just grew in just a matter of minutes as a lot of good times, a good song will. And I said, what are you yelling over there? And he went, I hate my generation. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. The sex pistols live, you know? And uh, so we had, I hate my generation and we've made a great video and released, released it uh, as a single. But I think mainstream radio were just terrified of it. It was a very, it's a very vicious song. It's got some real fangs to it. Uh, a very brutal guitar riff and sound. And David is singing, I hate my generation. Not He's screaming it. it, yeah. He liberated, uh, you know, I, which I loved when the second he started screaming, it, you know, I hate my generation. I offer no apologies. I hate my generation. Yeah. <laughs> and some people sort of took that the wrong way and people our age sort of took it as some sort of insult and uh, they didn't go bother to go deep enough to realize that you know the frustration and uh, the fact that a lot of them thought yeah i do too you know 
Uh, and at that time, David and I were thinking to ourselves and discussing that our generation are kind of wishy-washy. They're sort of non-committal, and they're so just all about being so PC that they take all the guts out of everything. It was just a time that that was sort of on our minds, you know. Low had been a big hit, and here, so some people took that as this ultimate stoner song. You know, David is, you know, <laughs> it's about a thousand things. Low is about so many things. And I remember pretty early on asking him about uh, the million poppies and about the green sheet of glass. And it's very, uh, in a very subtle way, alluding to uh, The Wizard of Oz. Um, and David wasn't really talking about it then, but looking back on it, I go, okay, maybe that's just, he would be just sort of felt the spirit of that film somehow. You know, I don't know. I just wrote the bonehead riff. What do I know? know? (laughs) Uh, That's a really weird riff. And the riff you hear on the record for low is actually a combination of me playing bottleneck slide and playing some of those riffs. And our producer, Don Smith, sort of mushed them together. And I think David was there when he did it. He said, yeah, just mush them together. That sounds pretty cool. It's not exactly what he played, but if you smoosh those two riffs together, look at that. <laughs> and then get off this, um, I had two big guitar riffs. And it was sort of like, guys, which one? What do you think? Which one do you like better? Or two complete melodic motifs, if you will. Right. And David and Davey said, use them both. So that's, they're both in the song. It just goes back and forth from one to the other. And I used a talk box. Listen to Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah, yeah. It's a talk box and it's a tube that goes into your mouth. The sound of your guitar goes out into the microphone, the tube in your mouth. So you can basically speak your guitar words. Do you feel like we do? You know, that's the Frampton. So and we were actually using the mobile recording truck that was used to record Frampton Comes Alive. Uh, so we said, well, we got to get a talk box. So I went out and got one. And I didn't know where we were going to use it. We ended up using it on Get Off This, and it worked perfectly. I'm singing the, I'm repeating the, the line back to David. Get off this, girlfriend. Get on with it, girl. You know, and it's fun. Get off this. Get on with it. If you want to change the world, shut your mouth. Start this minute. Golden Age and Gentleman's Blues, like, both of them have really great songs on them. Um... Neither had a big single. Neither had a big single. Did that sort of affect how you guys proceeded at that point? Did it sort of change the feel of the band and how touring and all of that? Interestingly, Mark, at that point, we were so full of ourselves and so uh, decidedly focused on moving ahead and still morphing and still changing uh, that we just said, oh, didn't have a big single. Oh, that sucks. Well, where were we? Let's keep going. And Gentleman's Blues are... I go back and listen to it, and it sounds like it's a really wonderfully conceived and recorded album. The songs are powerful. The production from Dennis Herring this time, who had produced the two big uh, Last Camper records, right. phenomenal. And he, uh, the start of that, I said, I want to become a better guitar player as I make this one. He went, all right, I'll get that out of you. Because he was also a studio guitarist and played on some big hits, some yacht rock hits back in the day. Yeah, we achieved something with Golden Age. It's funny, uh, the song, The Golden Age, you know, we were talking about, you know, anytime we'd be in a shitty hotel, like we were hanging out with our friends in Germany before we started the band, as we were just starting together. And I said, ah, The Golden Age. And, he's, and then, it, you know, I, we started joking about it again uh, after Kerosene Hat. 
And David said, well, if we're going to call the album The Golden Age, then we need a song called The Golden Age. So he went right immediately and wrote that beautiful song. And that was at the beginning of the record. We're coming up with all these other songs during the record. And throughout the record, he said, Johnny, I think it needs one of your, your, your riffs, your big bonehead riffs. All right, all right. I didn't get around to it. The whole record's being made, and we have Big Dipper. We have, you know, uh, just all these, uh, nothing to believe in, you know, big, heavy riff rock. And uh, at the end, you know, it was sort of like, well, here's the riff. The very first day he showed me the song, the very last day of recording, I went in with a baritone guitar and went, and there's the riff to the golden age. Yeah. And sandwiched perfectly. Last, the last overdub on the record was me putting that riff on there. <laughs> did, did the way you guys wrote songs change over this time or was it still pretty much the same sort of thing? Like you might come in with a riff and he might fill it, fill it in, or he might have something and then you'd add parts to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we never really did have a, a set way that we write songs. Some songs, what's interesting, and some bands have noticed this over the years, that there are songs that David is singing that I wrote, and vice versa, where David wrote every word and note of the song, and I'm singing it. Um, we just do that sometimes. And uh, David, uh, for Berkeley to Bakersfield, came up with California Country Boy, which, um, you know, earlier I'd come up with Time Machine, sometimes not about Honey, which is about our punk rock days. And uh, it's just, I, I, in my head, I heard David singing it as I'm writing it. And it's in 6-8 time part of the song. It's kind of weird for a punk rock song, but it worked. And I can't imagine, I mean, David sings it so much better than I would, you know. Put you in a time machine, see how you do. It's, a, it's an old school punk rocker giving shit to a new punk rocker about what it was like actually to be the guys getting billy clubbed at the Dead Kennedys gig outside by the cops, you know, being maced. You know, the tear gas. So I wrote a song about it. But I, it, as I'm writing it, uh, I was at that riot. I talked to East Bay Ray about that recently. That I was at that show where the whole place got destroyed. The cops came and people got beat up. And I made it out of there with just bruises. And that's what the song Time Machine is about. And I think David's sister, who was in my little gang of punks, a friend of uh, you know, I think she was dating one of my brothers at the time. And uh, so I just, in my mind, I'm writing that song and I'm just hearing David's voice singing. Yeah. was set the die for 1983 and i knew he would spit it just that way and recently uh, uh mr wrong same thing i don't know why i just felt like you know i had this song but it just felt right with david singing it he owned it me instantly uh and uh, recently he wrote uh, california country Boy, which um is a little bit autobiographical um uh, meant more than a little and it's about uh, that part of california people think of uh, we'd always talk about this. People think of San Francisco or Los Angeles, and there's this vast, huge, incredibly beautiful state in between. Uh, so, you know, uh, I love that chorus. You know, I got good friends down in Texas. I got family in Tennessee, but this here country boy's from California. Ain't no place I'd rather be. Wow. And he, and he said, I think it's a Johnny song here. So I sing it. <laughs> you know? And I love that. We just, uh, it's once again, I think Dave and I have always had uh, an ability as partners to say, hmm, well, how do we make the best of this song? How do we make the most of it? Who's going to sing it? Who's going to sing backing vocal? Who's going to drum? You know, and it so, works. So in the late 90s, he uh, they reformed Camper, and Camper and Cracker toured together a bunch of times. I, I saw you for the first time as that double bill at the Vic, as I recall, maybe like 99, something like that. I don't know. It's And then and, and he did a few 
camper records too. Uh, I think three, um, not counting Tusk, you know, and then you continued making cracker records. What was sort of the relationship between those bands? Was there, was there ever a point where you're like, Hey, wait a minute, you're writing songs with your old family now. And, uh, you know, that's this, this should be a song for your new family cracker or anything like that. Of course. It's a little bit of that, you know, um, what I did at the time, well, you back work on the camper. All I've heard for 10 years are the jerks those guys were, and vice versa. You know, they, there was a lot of friction with the end of that band. But I loved all those guys. They were my friends. Uh, and, you know, it ended kind of badly. Um, and I, that part of me always thought, wow, they were just getting someplace. So I had really mixed feelings about it. Suddenly, David's back working with him again, and I went, wow, what am I going to do? I know. I've got a whole bunch of songs I've been sitting on for a long time still writing so i made my first solo record palm hinge um and uh i remember people being nervous about it well you're gonna do a solo record well you're doing a camp man yeah i'm gonna make a solo record so i did it uh entirely out of my own pocket created my own little record label to do it camp stove records and i made this record and uh which i'm very very proud of and it it did very well it was reviewed by robert Criscow in the village voice who gave it voices choice. So, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you like them apples? <laughs> you know, it actually did very well, Mark. Um, the fans embraced it. Uh, it got just been very, very, very good reviews. I think in the Chris Gow review, he said, I don't think anybody has else has maybe, uh, gotten this, but he's made a concept album about the fall of California. And he was, he nailed it. And, uh, it was a subtle, but uh, yeah, um, the great decline in the songs on Palm Hinge sort of alluded to that here and there. Um, and the record did well and um, got reviewed. And, and But I, I think one of the, the only negative thing he said in the uh, review, in, that Chris Gus said in the review, is they might have one, two big Cracker Arena rock riffs from this guy, but so what? That's what he does in Cracker. That's what he does. That's funny. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. I go, wait, you think that's a that's a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm the commercial guy. David used to say that at the very beginning. We were writing songs together. And he went, Johnny's the merch guy. He's the commercial guy. Because I would come up with these big, very simplistic melodies. Not that he doesn't. He does the same thing. And not that I, you know, expound and go deep into my storytelling. And quite, so we've, we've, we've gotten a lot from each other as songs. My my memory was that there's one song on New Roman Times, uh, I think it was that Gummy Like is Back in Style, which I think was yeah. one you co-wrote. Was that like yeah, a cracker yeah. song that ended up on the Camper record? No, it's just, you know, we're like I said, we were always writing individually and occasionally together. Uh, we were in, in doing a session for something, and you know, I'm just we're just sort of strumming, and we just seen uh, that came from uh, we had been watching um oh, what's the David Lynch the show, the Tilda Hadab. Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks, thank you. And, uh, you know, the scene was the, the little person filmed backwards saying that gum you like is coming back in style. That's one of the things he says. Oh, right. And so we're saying that, that gum you like is back in style. Do, 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 do. I think I had a little Casio noodling around on that. And uh, David, <laughs> David, David, he took it into like the Beatles. John, Paul, and Ringo, no George. <laughs> what? It's just so fantastic. Uh, it's yet another song. It doesn't really, you know, that gum you like is back in style. I haven't seen you for a while. It's very, it's almost Beach Boysy sort of pop. 
And uh, he was making, they were making another camper record. And he said, do you mind if I take them? I go, wow, go ahead. I'm, what an honor. I co-wrote a song in a camper record. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're going to, we'll write more. You know? <laughs> what was it like when you actually toured with them? Did everyone ride one bus and get along really well? No, you hated each other. No, uh, there was a healthy rivalry between the two bands, uh, but there was also a lot of uh, mutual admiration. I mean, I'm the biggest Greg Leischer fan in the world. He's just a unique, phenomenal, not only a guitar player, people don't, he's underrated as a songwriter. And yeah, he's sort of like the role I play in Cracker, where I come up with a lot of melodies and co-write with David. He did the same thing in Camper Van Beethoven. And uh you know, as time went on, and I started to really realize that, and listen to Greg's solo stuff, and I can listen to Camper records and go, wow, that's a that's a Leischer melody. Sure enough, you know, David said, yeah, absolutely. Listen to the melody I'm singing. That's a, that's Greg's guitar melody. Wow. So it's it's very similar the way those two would work in Camper. It's the way that Dave and I worked in Cracker. Yeah. Right. And Victor Krimenacher yeah. played with you guys in Cracker for a bit also, and he's a fantastic bassist, obviously. Yeah, we uh, Victor played bass when we were between bass players and did a, a fantastic job because he's an incredibly good bass player. And he plays differently than Farragher. Victor's bass style is a little more angular, you know, and he's just comes from a different approach, whereas Farragher is more soul, soul and funk based. And he listened to, to, to Victor's playing in, in the eyelids on those records and in those videos. He just has a certain way of playing bass that uh, it's very Victor Krumenacher. He's got a certain thing. Eyelids are sort of a um, indie super super group. Uh, they're members of uh, Guided by Voices, Camper Van Beethoven, and uh, they're writing incredible songs. And they pride themselves on writing really great two and a half to three minute songs. Chris was telling me um, in, a, in a discussion because I was showing him some of the Swive songs that this band that I've just finished producing called Swive. This band from San Diego. And it's very, uh, for the most part, like three-minute, unbelievably catchy pop songs written by, uh, there's a woman, Sid, who's a, one of the lead singers, and Indio, who's the other lead singer, and they both play lead guitar and they both sing. And they both write incredible pop songs together or separately. And uh, it's funny because Indio's mom has been a Cracker fan forever and come to the shows. I remember meeting this guy as a little boy doing watercolors for me, and now I'm producing his band, and the band are incredible. I think they're going to blow up this year. Swive, like five, but with SW. Cool. So I'm really proud of my production of it too. Nice. I have to check that out. Yeah, Eyelids played at the Hideout in Chicago just a few nights before you, Cracker, played at Space. So I actually had like a week in which I saw Victor playing and you guys playing. So how were they live? I've yet to go to a show. They sounded excellent. They sounded great. No, it's really good. And and you guys sounded great too at at space. So when you're touring with David, doing you know these Cracker shows night after night, do you ever come up with one of your bonehead riffs and say, "Hey, let's write a new Cracker song"? Ah, uh, I got a bunch. We'll see where they land, you know. But you guys don't write on the road. Um, we do, but we're just you know writing our solo stuff. I've got a pretty good chunk of the next solo record written. I think he's done his full series of these autobiographical CDs. His cycle. Yeah, yeah, I like his, this cycle. He got onto that uh, idea uh, back, I think, of Shadow of the Bull, I think was the first one. You know, if you listen to the records, he walks you through his history as a musician, as a band member, as a songwriter. He talks about his personal life. He talks about his family and his kids and everything. It's really, uh, it's, all, it's, all, it's all there. 
He talks no, about uh, talks about uh, telling the audience the Virgin President's phone number and getting dropped <laughs> from the label. That was you guys. Yeah, we've uh, we've caused some trouble over the years. Um, yeah, he's uh, always been that David Bowery, not afraid to not afraid of a dust up. Um, and if somebody pisses him off, you know, go to them. You know? <laughs> do you still get the same charge out of you know playing touring with Cracker? I sure do. You know, people always expect me to say that, oh, I'm so tired of playing low or teen angst. I love those songs. I still love playing those songs. Now, part of that is, you know, walking up on stage and seeing that immediate gratification of people. And now people in their 20s singing along with the songs that you wrote decades ago is, is, is pretty beautiful. But yeah, I still love it. Um, you know, we just did uh, another. I love the way we're doing it now because uh, at age 66, I really like being able to go home every week. We'll do anywhere from two to four or five shows in a row and then we'll fly home and rest and do our laundry. And I don't even, you know, my suitcase is still on the couch. I don't, I don't really unpack except to wash the dirty clothes. Maybe put another guitar pedal in there to then head right back out. I love doing it this way. And it keeps it, it keeps it exciting. It's better, better for everyone's health, I think, too, to just be able to stop and not get on, get on each other's nerves. Uh, about a year ago, I said, I don't think I can do the tour bus thing anymore. I'm just too old. But yeah, it's 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 a grind doing the tour bus thing or doing it in a couple of vans. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It is just a grind, especially at our age. I mean, if we were at a level of a U2 or somebody or REM when they when they bowed out gracefully and we each had our own tour bus, might be different. But it's all of us. You know, we're, we've never been a real big band, so we're all jammed in a couple of cars together or for a tour bus for a long time. So it's it's tough. Uh, as we like to say, as, as some, some can't remember which famous musician said, uh, I think it was Elvis Costello who said, you're paying us for the travel because we love to play music, but the travel, the, the older you get, the more it's just, it's just a grind, you know? I know the airport's better than I know my house, my home. So. Right. But no farewell tour or anything, like you're going to keep doing that for a while. Uh, well, as I tell the crumbs, Come see us. If you've been meaning to come see Cracker, come see Cracker. Please come see us. You'll be do, glad that you did. Do it while you can. Do it while you can, because uh, every day is precious. And, uh, you know, by next year, we may be sick of each other and uh, go out and do our own things for another year. Um, I doubt either Lowry and I will completely retire from playing live music or making making music or writing recording music. Um, we have our other lives separately. Uh, we love playing music together, but uh, where that'll be after this kind of a grind of a year, we're doing a lot of shows this year. And last year I said, I'm done. I don't, want, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. Uh, and it wasn't a threat. I really did feel that way. I didn't want to do it anymore. Mark. I was just tired of it, tired of it. Uh, I have two sons. Uh, my younger son is 20. He's going to turn 21 in November. So I marked off time to be with him at his 21st birthday. My older son, He's 35 now. And there were a lot of really big holes in uh, my fathering of this boy when he was young. Because it's right, he was uh, two, three, four years old when Cracker took off, when our career took off. And I just, uh, you know, we had to make hay while the sun shined. And uh, so I was gone a lot of his childhood. And I'll have regrets about that till the day I die. I mean, I would grab him and put him on the tour bus with us. Uh, and I would uh, bring him to shows. And I got a, I just found a, a photo of him hanging out with Beck when we you know, just at a show, you know, so he, he remembers all those things really fondly, but they were just big holes in, uh, in our relationship. 
early on that were just now, he's 35 and I'm 66. We're mending a lot of those bridges over the last 10 years. And we're going to make a record together this December. Nice. <laughs> going to produce dad. That'll be interesting. Guy who produces electronica and hip hop. Like, Come on, we can do it. He's courageous. He's like, I'll, I'll do it. And I, I know you will. If you want to, if you don't want to, the future is unwritten, Mark. I mean, we'll see what happens. I never say never. If David called me tomorrow and said, let's, let's make an EP, let's make a couple of songs, I'd, I'd gladly do it. But if he doesn't, I got plenty of other things to do. I've got some bands here in Colorado that want to work with me as a producer. Um, I just finished the Swive record, which is phenomenal. I'm so proud of it. Um, so I've got things I can do and continue to do. Um, but, you know, Cracker, it, 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 as of this as of this writing, as of this interview, we are really enjoying playing live music coast to coast. And I'm excited to get back on that plane day after tomorrow and go do another bunch of shows. Well, I hope you have some smooth flights and not too much turbulence. Thank you. Moving forward. Uh, great talking to you, Johnny. Great seeing you play. Uh, I'm glad I caught you on this tour. I hope you swing back through Chicago again, or I swing back through another city and manage to catch you again. Uh, I look forward to hearing all that music you're talking about, um, including your hip hop electronic album coming up. So. <laughs> That's all for episode 98 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Johnny Hickman for opening up so enthusiastically about his life in and around Cracker and for recording so many great songs and unforgettable bonehead riffs. Cracker will celebrate the 30th birthday of Kerosene Hat as well as Hickman's and Lowry's birthdays on two nights of shows on three stages at Knuckleheads in Kansas City on September 8th and 9th. The band also will play in Greensboro and Savannah, Georgia on September 22nd and 23rd, respectively. Look to CrackerSoul.com for more information. Also check out and buy Hickman's solo work on his Bandcamp page, JohnnyHickman.Bandcamp.com. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who would never be called Mr. Wrong. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks. Thanks.